Welcome to the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. We've reached the end of our eighth season. Today, we're taking a look back at our best moments. This season, I had the pleasure of speaking with not one, but two bona fide voices in the art world, but more than a few colleagues from across HBS, some of whom you might have recognized from our previous seasons. Listen on to hear a recap of key lessons we gleaned from this season's varied slate. My hope, as with every episode, is that you'll walk away with new insights that you can apply to your own career and your life more broadly. Before we dive in, thank you to all of our guests for sharing their hard-earned wisdom and insights with me on the pod. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. We're taking a quick break, but we will be back soon with all new conversations. And until then, I encourage you to check out any episodes you might have missed. All right, without further delay, here are some key insights from another tremendous run. We kicked off the season in style with Hugo Nathan, co-founder of art advisory firm Beaumont Nathan, to hear his take on investing in real assets by way of art. Tell me, Hugo, how do you think about art as an investable asset class? You know, is is it a good inflation hedge in an inflationary environment? Is it challenging in this climate? Like, what do you think about it as an asset? We, as, as art advisors, don't really like art being sold as a, as a short-term investment. I think it's quite destructive for artists, for the market. It encourages sort of very quick trading of, of assets and, and sort of makes the market quite unstable, but it also stops people looking at the underlying asset. I think as a long-term investment, art is brilliant. I, I think um, you get to live with something if you really love it. And if you've bought it carefully and you haven't overpaid when you've acquired it and you've bought something really meaningful and beautiful, not only do you get years of enjoyment out of it, but I like to think that usually it proves to be a very successful investment. We were joined by my esteemed colleague, Faith Rosenfeld, the governing partner and the chief administrative officer of HPS. Faith has stepped into numerous newly minted roles with no playbook, and she's developed a knack for adapting quickly to fully execute. How do you learn new skills on the job when you take on these new roles? How do you figure out how to do them? You know, I I would look at uh, people around me who had pieces of skills that I thought were important to what I wanted to do and essentially mimic what they were doing. You know, nobody had all of the skills that were necessary to do my job, but there were certainly plenty of people around that had pieces of it, whether it was the operational piece or, uh, or, or, you know, other pieces. And so that's really, I sort of cobbled it together. And you know, the good news is that since no one had done it before me, uh, there was nobody to measure me against. So, you know, anything I did was additive. We got a global perspective on ESG investing from Nicholas Gartzai, the chief investment officer of Munich Re. It's clear that ESG is more than just a buzzword for German institutions in particular. How are you incorporating ESG considerations into your investment philosophy these days? So starting at the end of 2019, by 2025, we set the emissions for our investment portfolio will be 25 to 29% now. And we're well on track uh, to meet that. And how do we do it? We can exclude bad things, if you like, from the portfolio. The challenge, I think, with that is the real world impact is minimal. You sell something, someone else buys it. So I don't think it potentially achieves a great deal. The other way, I think, to do ESG is to engage with companies. I think that's very powerful because it changes behaviors. And the really powerful way is to integrate ESG factors into an investment process. And by integrating it, that means the portfolio manager, yes, looks at all the traditional valuation metrics, but also just thinks also of how ESG factors impact those as well. 
And that's super powerful because you're then changing behaviors. You're changing a culture. And then actually you do have, I think, quite a significant real world impact. We built a playbook for managing crises to emerge as an even stronger firm with Paul Nolmeyer, Managing Director and Chief Financial Officer at HPS. March 2020, COVID hits, the world falls apart. Talk to me about the challenge that created and how you managed the operations of our business during that time. Yeah, one of the most important things was we were leaving the office on March 13th, but we needed to make sure that technology worked remotely. We did a lot of testing and we went through literally every employee at the firm. And then you pivot and you say, okay, let's get into the portfolio. How's the portfolio doing? You had a lot of borrowers who came back and they said, you know what? I need flexibility. I'm paying interest or principal. Okay. What does that mean for us? By the way, this was something that was not created as a result of poor management of those borrowers. I think as a firm, we took a very strong approach of wanting to support businesses that also were willing to support their own businesses, meaning would they stand behind it? Would they put additional capital in? Would they support their employees? And we had to go work with many of our financing institutions and say, we need flexibility as well, potentially. Can we work with you? Because we want to make sure we can provide the capital to our borrowers. And we want to make sure that you're going to provide flexibility to us during this period of time. And we were able to come out in a position where we were even stronger post and also capitalize on the opportunities that presented themselves during that period of time. And I think that goes to then build further relationships for the firm that result in repeat business later. We traveled back in time to hear the fascinating stories behind some of our most iconic ballparks, like Camden Yards in Baltimore, with Janet Marie Smith, the Executive Vice President of Planning and Development for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Janet, we have listeners around the globe. Camden Yards opened in 1992. As you say, they decided to upgrade from the old Memorial Stadium. It truly kicked off an era of innovative downtown park designs. How did that all come together? Well, the stars were really aligned by two acts of two different men who probably did not realize at the time how important their individual goals were to the success of the others. William Donald Schaefer, who had been the mayor of Baltimore, had been elected governor. He had seen the Baltimore Colts, the football team, literally pack up and leave in the middle of the night and move to another city. Somewhat unprecedented and unusual in America's sports even today, but he knew that this was real, that the Orioles were not going to stay in an inferior building, much as we might have loved Memorial Stadium sentimentally, they were not going to stay there. It was on his watch that all of the aforementioned improvements had been done in downtown Baltimore. And so he really felt strongly that any new stadium, he would have called it a stadium at the time, should be downtown. He had invested heavily, both his personal and political reputation, on transit, Baltimore had trains that went to Washington, had light rail that was under construction, had then and has today a very strong presence on Amtrak. And he's thought, why would we want to go build anywhere but where we already have this infrastructure? Larry Lucchino, who became president of the Baltimore Orioles, he cared 
only about building an old-fashioned ballpark with modern amenities that had the charm of the early ballparks, such as Forbes Field, where he had grown up in Pittsburgh, Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, Ebbets Field. And, you know, we built something, you know, had we been downtown and Larry not cared so much about this ballpark thing, we might have had just another round donut. My colleague, Vikas Keswani, a managing director and head of North American Specialty Lending at HPS, offered insights into the private credit market from the Milken Institute's 2023 Global Conference in Los Angeles. If you do review 23 years of data around lending and credit, this moment in time is somewhat unprecedented. A couple of things going on. First, we've got high base rates. The last time we had high base rates were 2005, 2006 similar to today, and base rates right now are north of 5%. In those environments, historically, you've seen spreads compress and spreads remain particularly tight. That is not the case today. So those two elements are unique. What else is unique is post 08, 09, the financial crisis, you've seen a continuing regulatory-driven and risk-driven reduction in bank lending. More recently, a lot of the regional banks have had some stress, and you've seen that play out. What this all means is banks are doing less and less lending, which has created this opportunity for private credit generally to step in. And that is also unprecedented. You haven't seen that historically. And so when you put those three things together, we think this environment is exciting. We got a crash course in confidence from Lydia Finette, a charity auctioneer, author, and ambassador for the iconic Christie's Auction House. I start off the book trying to bring people into those few seconds before I get on stage. You know, I started by saying, Lydia, you're on in 10 seconds. And I walk you through the process of what it takes to walk out onto a stage of a thousand people with a piece of paper that basically has one line of copy on it and you need to raise a million dollars and what it takes to steal yourself against that moment. And I started off by talking about the strike method. And that really, for me, is the gavel. The gavel falling makes me feel confident and empowered and ready to own the room and take the stage. And that's the beginning beginning of the book, I walk you through essentially how I learned to be powerful on stage, how I learned to have the confidence to stand on stage in Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen and feel fully confident that I'm supposed to be there in that moment. And I try to tell a lot of the pitfalls because I think a lot of people see the end product, especially in this day and age. When you think about Instagram or Facebook or, you know, I'm not on TikTok, but social media in general allows us to give the highlight reel of our life. But the highlight reel of my early days as an auctioneer was so painful. And I want you to know that so that the next time you fall flat on your face, like I did many times, you will understand that that's what it takes. You know, failure is a huge part of the learning process. And as you become less fearful of failure, the faster you go and the more you do. We looked at education reform through an unexpected lens with Mike Levin, CEO of Harlem Lacrosse, a nonprofit dedicated to creating better educational outcomes in underserved communities through sports. It's kind of an old school idea. It's kind of like a very traditional teacher coach bottle. So we're just applying it to a different setting. But I think it could be much larger. You know, like the implication of that is that if you make this type of investment, you can really advance educational equity. There's school systems all over the country that are not producing the outcomes that they want or that we want or that the kids in the families in those communities deserve. That's not because there aren't smart, hardworking people trying to do that. How can we get the most out of the school system so that the outcomes that are possible for the students with the most resources are possible for every student in this country? Thanks again to our guests for joining me this season. 
Check out all of our episode show notes to learn more about their respective roles. You'll also find links to our best ideas. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. See you in the next season. The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners.